I don't know if you followed in the news earlier this week, uh, but it brought back memories for me. Uh, Credit cards had until October 1st uh, to give you a card that had a chip in it, which is supposed to be safer for our transactions. And and I've been waiting um, for a new card, but I guess the one that we have actually had a chip, so I probably needn't wait. But it reminded me the last time that I was waiting, we didn't have a credit card. And in fact, we'd only both been employed about a month when we'd gotten out of school. And finally, our credit card came in the mail. And I remember when I got it, I thought, finally, I have arrived. I am somebody. I had my very own American Express card, and there is my name on it and said, member since, well, since that year. And when we got it, we had friends visiting. And so to celebrate, uh, we went, uh, we lived in the Rio Grande Valley. We went to Louis' backyard on South Padre Island. And I told them, I got a credit card. I'm paying for dinner, which, of course, surprised them greatly. And they were even more surprised when after dinner, the waiter asked us, did we want dessert? And I had the card and I said, I got this. Let's do it. Uh, And it was a wonderful meal. It was wonderful dessert. Everything could not have been better. Until I gave my card to the waiter and he said, we don't take American Express. <laughs> Fortunately, my friend who had been employed a couple years longer than I had was able to bail us out. But I remember that day and realized I made a mistake. And it wasn't so much in choice of credit card. It was in thinking that some company somewhere could tell me I had arrived. That some company somewhere could give me value. I realized that I had let my identity fall in, in a sense, to the wrong hands. And it's made me think for years about how do we know who we are? How do we know our significance? How do we measure our worth? And as I've thought about it, I figured out there's at least three main ways, I think, that uh, people like me do this. The first one is this. A lot of us figure that we are uh, what we have. And so our worth and significance is 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 measured by the kinds of things we accumulate, whether they're diplomas to put on our wall, uh, a house, or certain things in the house, or, or cars in the driveway. We think that, that what we have uh, distinguishes us, and a lot of advertising actually operates on that assumption as they try to sell to us. But immediately I know you see the problem with this, and that is if your value is based on what you have, what happens if you lose it? Uh, that becomes a problem. And then the other thing is, by that sort of math, then if you wanted to feel even more significant and more valued, then you would need to acquire more. And so people who are off on this particular uh, form of measurement to figure out who they are end up in a, in a life full of acquisition, a life uh, of discontent because what they have is never enough. They need to have more to establish themselves and their identity even more firmly. And just a side note to those of us who've been on this sort of journey, uh, having been through this now with two sets of parents, remember every possession you add to your house, your kids have got to deal with when you're gone. That way seems to me not to be a helpful way. But there are other ways to do it. I think a lot of people measure themselves, measure their significance, their value, and their worth uh, by the job they do or or the title they have. And so by this uh, way of reasoning, and the the higher up I am in the company, uh, the more people that call me sir or ma'am, the better I must be and, and the more value that I am. 
But uh, you already probably see the problems in that, and that is that in our changing economy, it is not unusual for companies to buy out other companies, for right-sizing or downsizing to take place. And we can do a wonderful job, but through no fault of our own, find ourselves no longer with that particular um, title. And, uh, and even for our, my kids' generation, it's quite likely that they won't just have one job, uh, much less even one career. For their whole life, they may switch several times. And so if you're basing your worth and significance on something that's really in the hands of the economy or other people, you can get into trouble uh, that way as, as well. And uh, my parents were wonderful, and uh, they did a great job. But, but I remember one of the things they told me probably has not helped me the most in my life. And that was this, when I announced to them that I felt like I had been called by God to be a pastor and that I was going to go that route and go to seminary, I remember my dad saying this to me very clearly. He said, he said, David, I don't care what you do as long as you're the best at it. Well, how do you get to be the best at this? You know, what is it? Is it the size of church? Is it uh, selling books? And, you know, because there's always someone with a bigger church. Unbelievably, there are people who sell more books. Um, that, that doesn't seem to work well at all. And, and then what happens? What happens when not only you lose your job or you voluntarily give up your job? You, you retire. Who are you then? Are you going sabbatical for three months? You know? If we're based on what we do, that brings its own sorts of difficulties. Well, there's still another way I think I've known that I've measured my worth by, and I bet I'm not the only one. Sometimes we measure our worth by what other people say about us. So if other people like us and think we're significant, well, we must be. If other people think we're valuable or we're good, then that must be the case. But I know you see through this one, and that is that, you know, people are fickle. And they can like you one moment and not so much. That can even happen in your family. Um, And the other thing is people that you are waiting to pass judgment on you or evaluation on you, uh, not only are they fickle, but they don't really know you that well. Perhaps they made an evaluation about something you did or failed to do, but they had no idea of the circumstances behind this. There's a famous story about the founder of Methodism, John Wesley. He's in a carriage one day in the London area, and a man gets on the carriage, and he's dressed, uh, just dressed uh, wonderfully. Uh, And Wesley's sitting there thinking to himself, well, this guy is a dandy. Uh, He said, this guy just cares about his appearance, probably spends all his money on his clothes and possessions. And Wesley's thinking all this, and then they get to the stop, and the man gets out. But before he gets out the carriage, he looks at Wesley, uh, a stranger to him, and says, do I look all right? I look all right. I'm going to my father's funeral, and this was, this was the best that I had to wear. And Wesley realized how mistaken he was and how he had made an assessment about this person that wasn't even close. And there are other people that do that to us all the time, and so we turn our value over to them, and they don't even know who we are, much less what we're going through. A friend of mine summarized this uh, pretty well for me one day. He said, well, let me hear what you're saying, David. I think it's this that I spend a lot of my life trying to impress people who are just as screwed up as I am. Yeah, that's pretty much how it works. And so we put our worth or value in their hands. Uh, There was a football coach from Michigan State years ago. His name was Duffy Doherty, and he said something, uh, and I will never forget it. He said, you know, the problem with being the head football coach at Michigan State is you are responsible to irresponsible people. 
I guess he meant the alumni. Yeah, people making decisions about you and they don't even know. There's got to be a better way. Surely our worth is determined by other than what we have, what we do, or worst of all, what other people say about us. Well, I have a suggestion. Some of you have heard it before. Why don't we ground our worth in what God says about us? What does God say? Well, I I get a clue in the baptism of Jesus because this is real interesting. If you look at the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is baptized, the heavens open and the voice of God says very plainly to everybody, This is my son. I love him. I am pleased with him. And then you think about where you are in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus hasn't preached a sermon. He hasn't healed anybody. He hasn't told a parable. He hasn't done anything yet except get in the water. And God is indicating right away to Jesus that I love you before you do anything and regardless of what you do. And as parents, we get that, right? I mean, when you had a child, you realized that you went ahead and fed your child even before their first report card, didn't you? You changed their diaper when it was wet or dirty before they helped with the dishes. I mean, when you had a child, your love was a preemptive strike. You went first and loved them before they could do anything. And the Gospels tell me that our Father is the same way. And Jesus knows this. And so that's why he goes out in this morning story and and recruits people that, quite frankly, haven't done anything yet. Because if they had done anything, they would already be a disciple of some other great rabbi. But the fact that they're fishing or collecting taxes or hanging out means that no other great rabbi has thought of them as worthy. See, what's interesting is in Galilee, uh, when, when uh, the biggest game going is, um, uh, is the Bible and who is best at interpreting the Bible. It's almost like a sports star today. In Galilee, if they had trading cards, it wouldn't be of uh, LeBron James. It would be of Hillel, Shammai, John the Baptist, Jesus. Those are the rock stars of the day because the Bible is so central to what they do. So the fact that this great uh, star would come and call you was unbelievable. And the deal was a rabbi never called and said, you know, I, I think you've got the intellect. You can learn everything I've got to teach. What they really meant was, I think you can be the kind of person I am and end up doing the very things I do. In other words, if the rabbi took you in as a disciple, the rabbi really believed that you could be just like the rabbi. It was an amazing thing. So think about this man that now is doing miracles and and healing and curing and preaching to great crowds. And all of a sudden, he calls you off a boat. Well, of course you leave the boat. If you remember the story of James and John, they're fishing with their dad. Jesus walks along, calls them, and they don't even think twice. I used to feel bad for the dad until I understood what a big deal it is for a rabbi to call you and say you could be just like me. Uh, Years ago, my son went to law school. And in his last year, if a Supreme Court justice would have asked him to clerk for, for him or for her in Washington, D.C., I would not have pouted about it. I would not have said, oh, why are you leaving Texas and leaving me behind here? Are you kidding? If my son would have clerked for Supreme Court justice, it would have been on the front page of the bulletin every Sunday for a year. You know, James and John's dad is not upset. This is the most unbelievable thing. James and John haven't accomplished anything in their life. And the rabbi says... You can be the rock star just like me. Jesus was saying to them what the Father had said to Jesus is, before you do anything, I believe in you. You are valuable, you're worthwhile, and I want to spend time with you.
It's an amazing thing. I only wish that, you know, I believed it. You know, when I think about my own life, a lot of times I will put my trust in what I do or, or what I have. But more likely, I'm going to listen to what other people say. And occasionally, I'll listen to what God says. But do you know the voice that prevents me most from going off and following Jesus is the one in my own head. The one that tells me, you can't do it. You're not worthy. If Jesus only knew what you really thought in your private thoughts, if Jesus only knew what you did way back when, he would never call you. And unfortunately, that voice in the back of my head tends to speak louder than the other voices. And what should be a no-brainer and I should run to the mountain and follow him becomes a battle and a struggle. You know, I had a flashback this morning about credit cards. And then before the service, uh, Nora was passing out cookies to advertise for the blood drive. And they really are amazing cookies. Uh, But I had to think twice before I ate one because I don't have the best history with cookies. Um, Years ago... Uh, my wife was uh, in, in Dirk, Duke Nursing School, and I was, I was in the seminary. And uh, usually at the end of the day at nursing school, uh, I, would, I would go uh, pick her up. And, and she was working with a professor at this time in, in the office. And I'd just go to the front of the school, and she'd come out, and, and we'd drive back to the apartment. But one day, I, I was watching TV, eating a snack, and I don't remember all that I was doing. But uh, she called and said, this time I don't want you to just pull in front. I want you to go around the back and come in. Uh, she said, Dr. Woods wants to meet you. Well, Dr. Woods was a high-powered professor making, doing amazing research, contributing a lot to the nursing and medical community. This was a big deal. So I thought, okay, I've got to sound intelligent. Um, and you know, she kind of wants to know about uh, graduate school and what I'm learning. So I went, and we had a conversation. I tried to use a couple big theological words just to let her know, you know, knew the stuff. I thought I had actually acquitted myself pretty well. And so we went out in the parking lot, and I got ready to open the door for Pam to let her in, and she's like, no, I'll do it for myself. Well, I'm not real sensitive and perceptive, but I knew that wasn't a good sign. So I'm like, okay. So I go around, and I get in the car, and I get in the driver's seat, and I get ready to turn on the car, and my wife takes the rearview mirror, flips it in my direction, and said, look at yourself. And I looked, and I had Oreo cookies all over my face. <laughs> I want to tell you that for the three years that she was a part of Duke Nursing School, from that day until she graduated, I never went in that building again. Because I was afraid that's the way they would see me. And I think sometimes we think, I've messed up, I didn't accomplish, this didn't go well. Surely, surely he doesn't believe in me any longer. But that's not the case at all. That's not how God sees it. Um, Thomas Merton once said this, Just because we are occasionally hateful to ourselves doesn't mean that God hates us. God doesn't look at us the same way we look at ourselves. God has this amazing double vision, not only to see me the way I am, but to see who I may yet become as I follow. And the fact of the matter is that that God not only loves me, God likes me, and, and we're told that Jesus wants to spend time with me and believes that I can be just like him. I don't have to prove my value. I already have value. And if you don't think this is a big deal, it is a big deal. Is the foundation not only of all spiritual life, it's the foundation of all life. I don't know if you read what the paper had to say yesterday, the observation about the gunman in Oregon. They said he felt like he was a loser. 
to know who you are, to know your value and to know your worth, that's life and death stuff, friends. Doesn't mean I don't have a lot to learn and areas in which to grow. I do. But the foundation is knowing how valued and accepted and likable I am and moving from that point forward. It was 1918. The First World War had just ended And there were 50 French soldiers who were suffering from amnesia because they were shell-shocked. So they gathered these 50 soldiers. They put an announcement out uh, in the paper and other places. And thousands gathered um, on the Champs-Élysées. And they they set up a stage and they set up a microphone. And one by one, the 50 soldiers came out to the crowd and said this, Can anyone tell me who I am? The good news is at the end of the day, almost all 50 of the soldiers found their home. The bad news is almost 100 years later, we're still asking the same question. Don't let your job, don't let other people, don't let your possessions, don't let anybody but God tell you who you are. Who are you? You're beloved, you're valuable, you're likable too.